How's everyone doing? Good, good. Nice, we're actually starting to get warm weather. Do you see it's supposed to be 80 on Tuesday? Yeah! I am so excited for that. Because it's a crazy, we got what? Four inches of snow last week? That's insane! But this weather here is, yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are so happy to have you here. This week we are continuing our Lent series um, about overcoming about stories and times when God stepped in to help people in ways that seemed impossible. Last week, we talked about our overcoming stories. You guys shared stories about times God stepped in and did miraculous things in your lives. So thank you for everyone who spoke here last week and who submitted in videos that we kind of posted throughout the week. So we hope those stories can start this process of inspiring you to believe that God can do impossible things, unlikely things, and things we're not expecting. And so this week, we're going to continue that by looking at Moses. Moses' entire story is really about overcoming odds on a personal level for Moses, but also on a national level for Israel. The entire future of Israel hangs with Moses' story. And God's hand is guiding every single step of the story. So we're just going to kind of walk through Moses' story pretty slowly here today. So Moses is born in Egypt. At not a great time, the children of Israel are down in Egypt. They'd come down a few generations before um, at the behest of Joseph to escape a famine. Over these next few generations, they have shifted in favor in the eyes of the powers of Egypt. They become enslaved. Yet they continued... To kind of prosper. They continued to grow. They continued to multiply, which was a threat. And so Egypt does this. They decide, this is Pharaoh talking, or this is Pharaoh, Pharaoh releases this edict that firstborn boys are to be killed. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Sepharah, the other one whose name was Purah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill it. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So this is Pharaoh's way to try to control the Hebrew population, try to keep it from growing to a size where they could potentially overthrow. Now, this is not bode well for Moses, a male child, but these two Hebrew midwives don't listen to Pharaoh. They are more afraid of God than Pharaoh. So they are just letting boys live. So Moses is born, but it's still a problem. He's, he's still illegal. He, he still shouldn't be allowed to be alive there. So Moses' mom hides him for a while. Babies aren't quiet. Babies don't like to stay quiet. Babies are really bad at trying to hide. So, after a while, she realizes, Miriam, Moses' mom, realizes she can't keep him inside anymore. So she goes and hides him outside in, 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 in the water and the bulrushes, all of that. But here we get to the first kind of major pivotal moment in Moses' life. Moses is found by the Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of the person who signed the edict to essentially have Moses killed. 
That's not great. But God uses it for something good. It's kind of a random side note. I had a, I had a note on it here. Uh, Moses is such a fascinating story. Uh, there's a couple books on it, and this kind of opening part of it seems to think of there's a two versions of this book, but there's a book and an article about the women who saved a nation. And it goes through and just identifies how Moses' life was saved numerous times by various women throughout his life. So there's a little kid coloring book version of it. It's called uh, The Woman Who Saved Moses, and there's a kind of a higher academic version um, called The Woman Who Saved a Nation. So if you're interested, let me know. I can get you information on it. I thought it was a really cool kind of story going along with Moses. One of these women that helped save Moses, Pharaoh's daughter. She ends up rather than turning Moses in, she adopts Moses. So Moses is raised as a prince of Egypt. And I think we often overlook this. Unless we're talking terrible Disney movies, we don't really think of this aspect of Moses' life. But it is insanely important. This time, this time period, Egypt is a major power. So Moses would have received the best military training that could be offered. Moses would have been a general in the Egyptian military. Moses would have received diplomatic training. Um, we have a lot of archives from Egypt that are letters back and forth between Egypt and vassal territories that are just diplomatic relations. Moses would have been part of this. So all of this training Moses is getting is going to become useful down the road. Now, Moses never would have been allowed to ascend the throne, being the kind of adopted grandson of the Pharaoh, but he would have been in high council. So even if we stopped Moses' story right here, this is a good story of overcoming. You go from an outlaw being born, should have been killed, to a prince of Egypt, to the grandson of Pharaoh. That right there is a, a, a great story in and of itself. That's a Hallmark movie. But this, that's really just the first like three verses. The next thing Moses has to overcome, kind of himself. Moses, as a young man, runs afoul of the law. His parentage is kind of an open, unspoken, secret, conspiracy theory type thing. Most people seem to know he's adopted and not Egyptian, but it seems like it's kind of hushed tones of, we don't talk about that. Like, he's, he's a Hebrew, but we don't, that's, you don't talk about it or Pharaoh will get angry. So this leaves Moses in kind of this weird position. But he does feel a tie toward his people. So when he sees a Hebrew taskmaster, or a, a taskmaster of the Hebrew slaves mistreating some of his slaves, Moses steps in. However, Moses has severe anger issues. Fight escalates, Moses ends up killing him. That's not going to go over well. And you see that these anger issues will plague Moses throughout his entire life. He ends up getting better at it, but ultimately his anger and raging at times is the reason he doesn't get to go into the promised land. So I just like the idea of seeing Moses as this kind of not perfect character. Moses has a lot of issues, one of which, anger. But he is now a fugitive. He has killed an Egyptian taskmaster 
Pharaoh has placed a price on his head. He's, he's an outlaw now. He is forced to flee into the wilderness. Now, during this time, he's kind of left to wander on his own. However, he very quickly finds favor. And he finds favor in the eyes of a Midianite priest or, and a local shepherd by the name of Jethro. Now, we're going to come back to Jethro. Jethro's really important in the story. We're going to kind of tie him back at the end. Eventually, Moses marries one of Jethro's daughters, becomes Jethro's son-in-law, and starts his family, settles into the family business there. So once again, Moses finds himself in a pretty good position. He is now the son of perhaps the most powerful person in this region, the head of the religion, the Midianite religion, and one of the most wealthy herdsmen in the area. Albeit, he's kind of the head of a family on a much smaller scale than he was in Egypt, but still, he's carved out a very good life. He's in line to become kind of a head of this area. We stop the story here. This could be a good story of overcoming. He fell from grace from an entire country, was ran out of a country for murder, wanted, hated by the people that raised him, and honestly, as we'll see a little bit, kind of hated by his own people, by the Hebrew people, because he was seen as a traitor. He flees from that, survives in the wilderness, and is actually now thriving. That right there, that's a great capsule story. But we're not even close to the main story. This is just setting up Moses' main story. As I'm sure we know, you can't think of Moses without thinking of the Exodus. That's what Moses is, you know, magnum opus, if you're going to think of it that way. It's the Exodus. That's what he's tied to. So eventually, God calls Moses back to Egypt. You have the scene at the burning bush. Moses is resistant, but eventually, Moses relents. And God tells him that you are the person I've chosen to liberate the people of Egypt. Now, just pause and think about that. Moses is tasked with freeing a people group from the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Egypt is at one of the heights of its powers. This would have been during New Kingdom Egypt, which is one of its high areas. Most scholars put this during the 18th dynasty, which would have been the Ramesseic dynasty. That's a pinnacle power of Egypt. So it's not like, you know, Egypt is down, falling apart, and they kind of sneak out the back. God is asking Moses to do this at a height of Egypt's power, and Moses has no army. And the people Moses is trying to free don't like him. There's a lot of things stacked against this working. But Moses does it anyway. He returns to Egypt, or by the way, still wanted for murder, still has a death sentence on him. His own people still hate him, but he manages to get an audience with the Pharaoh, and it does not go well. Moses comes, really just starts by asking, hey, can, can me and the people, can we go do some sacrifices over here? Doesn't even ask to be freed yet, just ask, hey, can, can we maybe leave for a little bit? Pharaoh does not like this. Pharaoh thinks this means the people have free time to be idle and be lazy. And so this is how he responds. 
That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they make, uh, that they make in the past, you shall, sorry, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. So what, basically this means, apparently this time the people, the main thing they're doing is masonry, they're making bricks, making mud bricks. You would take the, your mud, you would take your straw, kind of combine it together, kiln it, or burn it in a kiln, right? You mix the straw in because you don't need it all mud, like that's a waste of material. You could intercut it with straw, still have it be pretty strong, but it's a lot cheaper to do. Previously, Pharaoh is giving straw. They're, they're coming into, they have straw, they have the mortar, make it. Now, Pharaoh's saying, no, you have to go get your own straw, process it, dry it, bring it in, and then make the bricks, and you're still responsible for the same number of bricks. So that's not good for the people. And who are they going to blame? Not, not Pharaoh, Moses. This is Moses' fault. You leave for decades, come back, and give us more work to do? Why would we follow you? But Moses keeps at it. Moses decides to perform a series of miracles. These don't really work either. Because the magicians of Pharaoh do the same thing. For example, Moses has a staff, throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. That by itself would be enough to convince me to do anything. Someone walks in right now, takes like that Mevo stand, throws it in the ground, turns into a snake. I'm done. That, yep, I'm done. <laughs> but Pharaoh's people do the exact same thing. Now, the snake Moses made eats the other snake. But still, in the eyes of Pharaoh, okay, we're, we're, you're still not proving anything to me. So eventually, Moses steps up his game, goes to the plagues, right? We know the plagues. You have your blood, frogs, locusts, darkness, all that. Eventually, this becomes enough. The magicians of Egypt can't repeat these. And eventually, Pharaoh's had it. He's tired of the kingdom being destroyed, tired of his people dying. So tells the people to leave. And in fact, not only tells them to leave, but the people of Egypt want them to leave so bad because they're tired of their family dying, their crops being ruined, everything being destroyed. They send gifts with them, basically. So Moses has walked into Egypt at, it, at one of its high periods, pulled out one of its major slave groups and plundered it and gotten Egypt to send them away with plunder with the riches of Egypt. But we're not quite done yet. As Moses leaves, Pharaoh changes his mind. Pharaoh decides, no, th I, I can't let this happen. This will make me look weak. This will look too bad. This will inspire other people to come in and try to do this. So Pharaoh gives chase. And we know the story. Moses is trapped between the armies of Egypt and the Reed Sea. God parts it. Moses walks through. Cold water comes crashing in, destroys the people, 
cuts off their escape, lets them get away. That's a story of redemption. That is a story of overcoming. And honestly, we could keep going. Moses' time in the wilderness is fraught with stories like that. These people are kind of the worst, and Moses has to overcome a lot to even deal with them. But let's pause it right there. Take a look at the story as a whole. How many times did God keep the story moving forward when it really didn't seem like it should have been possible? From the very moment Moses was born, God is intervening in his life in powerful ways. How many things that started out as negatives ended up being needed and essential to get to the end of the story? First one, obviously, being found by Pharaoh's daughter. If you're found by the daughter of the person that wants to kill you, that shouldn't end well, but it does. As we talked about, that leads Moses to receiving the military training, the leadership training, the diplomatic training he needs to handle not only the people of Israel, but their interactions with the people when they're wandering in the desert. If Moses is not adopted, does not, is not raised in Egypt, he probably can't lead the people. Second one, Moses' banishment into the wilderness. That's pretty bad. But two major things come from it. One, let's look at a map. Moses is banished down here into Midia. Do I have a pointer? Oh, I do have a pointer. All right, so the people, Moses is up here, right? He gets banished over here. Jethro, his father-in-law, is over here. Any part about this look familiar at all for what's going to happen? When the people leave, they come down this way. Oh, there's Mount Sinai, where they spend a lot of time. This is the desert that people wander around in before making their way up this way. So I think that's something we can overlook, is that when Moses is leading the people in the wilderness, he's not leading them places he hasn't been. It's not like he's wandering, having no idea what, where he's going. He's leading them in the land he's lived in for the past decades, the land he's raised a family in, the land he has spent years and years wandering around as a herdsman. That leadership would look very different if he was just blindly kind of wandering the land, not knowing anything about it. That's one thing that comes out of his exile. The other one is he meets Jethro, his father-in-law. Jethro is a fascinating character, and honestly, a pivotal character in the development of, really, the nation of Israel as a whole. Because it's Jethro that gives Moses the entire legislative organizational system for Israel. There's a couple, they're honestly really funny, passages where Moses is just like, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know what to do. And God's response is basically, listen to your father-in-law. He does this for a living. He's the head priest. He leads his people. He's telling you how to do it. Do it that way. So the entire system of appointing, you know, 40 elders do this, they do this task, they do this task, then things go up to Moses. That entire system comes from Jethro. The basis of Israel's legislative system comes from him. Had Moses not met Jethro, he's not leading the people. So I think it's really only the combination 
of his Egyptian training and the time with his father-in-law that allow him to lead the people. If he just comes at it with his Egyptian background, he's going to lead the people with too much of an iron fist. He's going to end up, as he was before, killing someone probably, right? That, that's the natural Moses. That's the leadership training he got from Egypt was, iron fist, I'm leading. From Jethro, he gets a system. He gets a way to not be overwhelmed. He gets a way to delegate. He gets a way to have other leaders help him. That system by itself probably isn't going to lead this unruly people. It's a combination of both. The only way he got those was because of the hard times he went through. Now, I, I read an article that talked about kind of this, and I thought it was really cool, so we're going to talk about it real quick. Jethro, if you read the story, you will notice he's not introduced as Jethro right away. He's introduced as Raul. It's probably Raul is his Midianite, Jethro's uh, uh, Semitic transliteration of it, whatever. But the thing that this article talked about that I think is really cool is the meanings of these names really highlight Moses' time in the wilderness. Before he leads the people in the wilderness, his time is his personal exile time. Raul comes from a root, ra'ah, which really means his companion of God. This is what Moses has to learn in his exile. In his time of growth, in his time where he's at his lowest, he has to become a companion of God. His time in Egypt, can we really say that about him? And honestly, this is something he continues to grow with, because when he goes back to Egypt to free the people, I would argue you probably couldn't fully say this about him there. He's kind of going fighting tooth and nail. He doesn't really want to. But once he becomes this companion of God, we get to, to the other name, Jethro, Yithros, which is to remain in. It's the idea of when you kind of pay your taxes or whatever, this is the abundance that's left over. And I love that combination here. Because it's once you become the companion of God, once you fully embrace this idea, you've given that, the abundances flow out of it. That's what Moses has to learn in his exile. That's what we have to learn in our difficult times. To give ourselves up, to fully trust, fully be a companion of God. And then that abundance will follow. Moses' best leadership doesn't come as a, as a military general of Egypt, doesn't come as a lead herdsman in Midian. It comes from combining that, fully being a companion of God, from the abundance that remains. That's where Moses' true leadership comes in. So the question is, what, what could God be calling you to? In this time, if you're going through a difficult season, what could God be preparing you for? Now, I don't want you to hear that I'm negating or downplaying the actual hardships people go through, because I'm not. Moses' hard times are felt. They are real. Moses suffers from depression. Moses has suicidal ideologies throughout the book. Moses feels his hard times. So that's not what I'm trying to say is, in hard times, just try to think about the happy, how God's using it. No, no, no. 
Hard times are there. How might be God be using those hard times? In the midst of difficulty, what is God saying to you? What is God doing for your future? That is one of the frustrating things about time. For us, it goes one way. We can kind of look back and see, but we would love to be able to see or know, okay, I'm going through this now, but I know it'll help me here. I know this is coming. Think of the times in Moses' times where things were hard. Miriam, Moses' mom, do you think she was maybe praying for a daughter so she didn't have to worry about a son being killed? Do you think she was sad when it was a boy, knowing the difficulties times were ahead? Moses, when he's exiled, do you ever think he would reflect back and be like, I wish I hadn't lost my temper. Now I'm in this spot. But both of them, had they known how the story was going to play out, probably wouldn't have changed anything. That's the difficulty we face. We don't know what the story is in front of us. All we know is what we're going through now. So all we can do is trust and believe that God has us and believe that God will take care of us that God won't abandon us. Moses was never abandoned through all the difficulties. God walked with him step by step. To believe the same is true for us, that that same God continues to walk with us when times are good and when times are bad. Trust that God is standing with us. Join me as we pray.